0: and create within us hope to be your resurrection people, to proclaim your love to all and to partner with you to further your kingdom in this world. We thank you for the example of Jesus, who embodied love, hope, and courage, and who taught us to pray. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven.
1: Thank y'all. That was beautiful. So stewardship. A lot of times whenever we think about or hear about stewardship, it's about numbers, how much went to a certain ministry, or how many families were served through such and such ministry. And at times it kind of loses its appeal and seem less personal. And so while I was preparing for stewardship, God said it is time for you to make it personal and share how stewardship here greatly influenced the life of me and my children. See, five years ago, I became a single mother, single-income household, as well as a low-income household. Uh, Unfortunately, at that time, my income wasn't low enough to get food stamps, and so food insecurity was very, very real. And there were times that I called up a friend of mine and I'm like, I've got hardly nothing in which to feed my kids. And she would come and fill my pantry with what she could. And then, God bless Wendy, she found out how insecure food was in my home. And she told me about harvesters, about their mobile food pantry, told me the hours for our food pantry here, and I guarantee y'all, food insecurity did not happen again in my home. See, it is this church's giving that made sure that my children were fed. And for every family that comes into this church to the food pantry or to the mobile food pantry, They are in a similar situation of wanting to feed their children or feed their parents that are senior citizens, and your your stewardship, your giving, and your hospitality helps end that food insecurity. It brings light, it brings love, it brings hospitality in a world where being poor is shameful. Not once did I ever feel ashamed coming to the food pantry here. I guarantee you, I felt that going to Just Foods. And it's not that people were intentionally making me feel ashamed, but lack of knowledge definitely made some of their comments a little less welcoming. And so as you consider how you are going to give, Remember the families that you're giving impacts in ways that you will not be able to imagine. Thank you. me please creator God we just come being thankful for the gifts that you have given each of us and we are thankful that we are able to be your hands and feet to those that are in need may you bless the tithes and the offerings to continue your work of being love peace and light to the world amen
2: Amen. you may be seated Well, I read this morning from the book of Ezra, as Pastor Christina noted a few moments ago, we begin today a series on race and faith, asking questions, what does our Christian faith invite us to do in terms of conversations about race in our country? Let's go together to the book of Ezra as we begin our exploration today. While Ezra prayed and made confession, weeping and throwing himself down before the house of God, a very great assembly of men, women, and children gathered to him out of Israel. The people also wept bitterly. Shechaniah, son of Jehiel, of the descendants of Elam, addressed Ezra, saying, We have broken faith with our God and have married foreign women from the peoples of the land. But even now there is hope for Israel in spite of this. So now let us make a covenant with our God to send away all these wives and their children, according to the counsel of my Lord and of those who tremble at the commandment of our God and let it be done according to the law. Take action for it is your duty and we are with you. Be strong and do it. Then Ezra stood up and made the leading priests, the Levites and all Israel swear that they would do as had been said, so they swore. Then Ezra withdrew from before the house of God, and went to the chamber of Jehonan son of Eliashib, where he spent the night. He did not eat bread or drink water, for he was mourning over the faithlessness of the exiles. They made a proclamation throughout Judah and Jerusalem to all of the returned exiles, that they should assemble at Jerusalem, and that if any did not come within three days, by order of the officials and the elders, all their property should be forfeited, and they themselves banned from the congregation of the exiles. Then all the people of Judah and Benjamin assembled at Jerusalem within the three days. It was the ninth month, on the twentieth day of the month. All the people sat in the open square before the house of God, trembling because of this matter and because of the heavy rain. Then Ezra the priest stood up and said to them, you have trespassed and married foreign women, and so increase the guilt of Israel. Now make confession to the Lord, the God of your ancestors, and do his will. Separate yourselves from the peoples of the land and from the foreign wives. Then all the assembly answered with a loud voice, It is so, we must do as you have said. But the people are many, and it is a time of heavy rain. We cannot stand in the open. Nor is this a task for one day or for two, for many of us have transgressed transgressed in this matter. Let our officials represent the whole assembly, and let all in our towns who have taken foreign wives come at appointed times, and with them the elders and judges of every town, until the fierce wrath of our God on this account is averted from us. Only Jonathan, son of Asahel, and Josiah, son of Tikvah, opposed this. And Moshulam and Shabbatai the Levites supported them. Amen. Wait just a minute. That that's in the Bible? <laughs> I'm pretty sure I've never heard that story before in my whole life. Maybe something akin to that just ran through your head as I read this passage from the end of Ezra. I know something akin to that ran through my head when I first heard this, or at least first realized what this story was really about in seminary. Not in Sunday school, not in youth group, not even in college, even though I'd read through the Bible all the way. I know I had read these words, but I didn't get it until I sat in the back of that class in seminary, and I said, that's in the Bible? In my Bible? In case you don't know or don't remember the context, let me remind you how we got here. Ezra is one of the exiles, one of many of the Israelites who have come back after the Babylonian exile. Ezra is one of the, the leaders uh, who, who helped to bring back the Israelites, helped them to, to return, helped them to restore uh, the, the temple and the wall around the temple and the, the, the kind of social uh, reconstruction uh, about the, the rebuilding of the, the Torah and reconnecting to the law. Ezra was a priest. In many ways, he was a hero. And uh, he saw God's people as uh, in need of God's leadership. And so now, chapter 10, here after years of exile, after a tenuous return, after a a shaky rebuild, it looks like finally they're going to be united under Ezra and the leaders of Israel. And then Shechaniah shows up. Anybody know somebody who named their kid Shekiniah? Well, There's good reason. We don't know much about Shechaniah besides this event, but his words here have a tremendous effect on this community of faith and on other communities of God's people beyond it. We don't understand exactly his story, but we do know his argument here in Ezra chapter 10, and it has five parts. Part one, God wants us to follow the Torah. So far, so good. This is the main point of the the book of Ezra. The Torah says that you should have no other gods before me. Okay. Some of our men have married women from other faiths and other cultures And other races. Therefore, the only way, the only way to be faithful to God is to send these women and the children from these marriages back to their homes and most likely to their deaths on the way in the wilderness as they return. Thus impressing God with our purity. okay then needless to say others have read this story and found it to be not quite what Shekiniah had in mind. Biblical scholar Johanna Boss suggests that Shekiniah demonstrates what she calls creative exegesis. Exegesis being simply a fancy word for Bible study and life application. She says that Shechaniah is creative in the way that he reads the Torah. She says, The Torah does not say that men who have married wives from other faiths or cultures or races must divorce them or send them back to their homes and most likely to their deaths. Shechaniah reads into Scripture something that most likely comes from his own cultural presuppositions, his own bigotry, his own racism. In fact, Boss suggests, Shekiniah completely misquotes the Torah, not just just misinterprets, but misquotes it, uses the wrong word. The Torah, on more than one occasion, suggests that the community of faith must care for and protect the stranger. The Hebrew word is gar. Those from outside the community who come seeking refuge in their midst— Sometimes it gets translated as a uh, as sojourner, as guest. Now, even though these women seem to be precisely the stranger, the, the, the guest that God commands the people to care for, Shekinah here in this place uses a different word, nokri, putting these women and these children into a different category, thus suggesting that the Torah's command for care no longer applies. Shechaniah dehumanizes these women and places them in the category of God's enemies. And the priest, Ezra, and the officials go along whole hog and enact Shekaniah's suggestion. According to Boss, this creative exegesis comes not from the pages of Scripture, not from the Torah, not from the law, but from a much co- closer culprit, fear. She writes this, she says, fear looks for a scapegoat. The officials in Ezra locate a scapegoat in the group of women who have been taken into marriage by the Jews. Because these men are afraid of the other and afraid of God and God's retribution, these women and children are sacrificed, sent into the wilderness alone because of these men's idea of purity. What do we do with this story? Well, unsurprisingly, this story of exclusion and violence has led to practices of exclusion and violence. A few weeks ago in the the two-way, we had a conversation about how Christians have have used the Bible to denounce multiracial marriages. The folks in the two-way said, well, where in the Bible can you find that? This passage in Ezra has been used to do just that. Likewise, this passage has been used to defend exclusion and violence based on race in multiple times, in multiple places, in multiple contexts. If the people of God could do this in Ezra based on one's race, based on one's culture, why can't we do the same? They've asked. Robert P. Jones writes in his book, White Too Long, that this is actually a a common practice of many Christians and many churches in the United States. In his book, he delineates 400 years of white supremacy in this country, much of it originated by Christians. Supported by churches, defended by scripture, lynchings, Jim Crow laws, state brutality, redlining, discrimination based on skin color, or simply names perceived to be of a certain race, cultural oppression through symbols and statues, violence against those in multiracial marriages and against their children, even the very institution of slavery itself, defended by the Bible. Each of these examples of creative exegesis based on what Jones calls some theological conception of purity. We must keep ourselves pure, holy, blameless before God, which in the United States for the last 400 years means white. If the people of God could enact this exclusion and violence in the book of Ezra, based on one's race and culture, why can't we? Jones recognizes and he writes that in our country, racism is not simply something that black people have to deal with that indigenous people have to deal with, that Latino and Latina people have to deal with, that racial and religious minorities have to deal with. He writes that racism and white supremacy are a disease that white people must deal with. A theology and a theological virus that has eaten us from the inside for 400 years, a spiritual sickness that we must find a way to diagnose, to eradicate, And immunize ourselves against. Jones finishes his book with these words, suggesting that our very souls might depend on him. He says this The question today is whether we white Christians will also awaken to see what has happened. To us, to grasp once and for all how white supremacy has robbed us of our own heritage and our ability to be in right relationships with our fellow citizens, with ourselves, and even with God. Reckoning with white supremacy for us is now an unavoidable moral choice. Period. End of book. Mike dropped. So what do we do with this story? What do we do with Ezra? What do we do with our scriptures? <laughs> did Did you notice the very last verse that I read? Verse 15. <laughs> I sure <laughs> didn't. I didn't e- even when I heard it the first time in seminary, even when I had read it before, until this week. I didn't didn't really hear it until now. Let me read it again. Only Jonathan, son of Asael, and uh, Jezeah, son of Tikvah, opposed this, and Meshulam and Shabbatai, the Levites, supported them. Jonathan, Jezeah, Meshulam, Shabbatai. Probably haven't met a lot of kids in elementary school with those names either, have you? One verse for all four of them combined. We know nothing about them except for the recording in this story that they were in opposition to this practice. You don't know why. You don't know why they opposed it. Maybe they wanted the, the, the expulsion of these wives to happen Quicker. Maybe they, they wanted to kill him right there on the spot. We don't know. But what if these four men heard the argument of Shechaniah and the acquiescence to that argument by Ezra and the vigor with which the people of God cheered this decision? And what if these four men said, this is not right? This creative exegesis is not right. Torah. And this is not the God I know. What if these four men looked these women in the eye and saw a guest, saw a stranger, saw a sojourner in need of protection? What if they saw these women holding their children who were crying in fear, and watched the gleam in the eyes of the man sending them away and said, we cannot be silent. What if they saw what was happening and believed the only way they could act in accordance with their faith was to resist? to stand against the exclusion and the violence and the scapegoating and the fear that was encouraged on that day? What if they used their power and their privilege? Remember, these are all four men with a voice in the assembly. Two of them come from the powerful family of the Levitical priests. What if these four men chose to say, we speak up and we speak out? Jonathan, Josiah, Meshulam Shabbatai, members of the resistance. The task of reading scriptures written long ago and applying them into a a current context, It's, it's a difficult one, I get it. Shechaniah and Ezra and the leaders here thought that they were being faithful. They they thought that they were protecting the ways of God. They thought they were defending purity, protecting the, the community. They believed that family and tradition and culture as they knew it must be safeguarded at all costs, especially against those people on the outside. But there is another way. In this passage, it appears that there is another voice, that members of the resistance chose inclusivity chose love of neighbor and stranger and enemy and other regardless of race regardless of difference they chose a different way and just a few hundred years later there lived another member of the resistance Around him were those who felt that they needed to protect the ways of God, to defend purity, to safeguard family and tradition and culture as they knew it. But this member of the resistance picked up the Torah and looked and chose inclusivity. He chose love of neighbor and stranger and enemy and other. He looked at the poor and the vulnerable and the hurting and the lonely and said, These are my mother. These are my brothers. All those who do the will of God are my brother and sister and mother. Jesus chose the way of of resistance. He stood up to those who would send out the other into the cold rain of exclusion. And he picked up the children and cared for the women and rejected the rejection of those in power and authority and said, we cannot be silent. Stephen D. Jones, no relation. Some of you will know as uh, Pastor Steve, uh, one of the co-pastors along with Dezo at the uh, First Baptist Church of Kansas City, Missouri. Pastor Steve has written a novel on the life of Galusha Anderson. If anybody's looking for kids' names, we got a bunch from the sermon today. Galusha Anderson was a pastor in St. Louis at the Second Baptist Church there in the city, and he served during the Civil War. Anderson served in a divided country, in a divided city, in a divided congregation. St. Louis was on the border between the north and the south. Those in his neighborhood and those in his church sent sons to fight each other on opposite sides of the Civil War. The safe thing, probably the smart thing for Galusha to do would have been to completely avoid the topic of the war and of slavery, which in fact he did for some time. But finally, his reading of the gospel and his reading of the times meant he could no longer stay silent in the face of the violence of slavery. He preached a sermon that explained how slavery and white supremacy and the gospel could not be concurrents and that this practice must not be allowed to continue. Galusha Anderson joined the resistance, but it did not come without a price. Confederate sympathizers left the church immediately, never returning to his congregation. His life was often threatened. The church was attacked during a worship service. Newspapers denounced him by name in print. He was literally at the top of a hit list created by Confederate sympathizers. His courage came with a price. But it was a price that he chose to pay. Today we remember Second Baptist and Galusha Anderson as heroes of the faith who chose gospel love over supremacy and hatred. So today I conclude with a passage from Pastor Steve's novel, written from the perspective of a a pastor in crisis. Hear now these words from Galusha Anderson. Maybe they might inspire and challenge us today. What was boiling within me was the gospel truth as I knew it. It was of a Savior who lifted people from bondage. It was a God who created all of us equal, no matter the color of our skin, It was of a gospel that proclaimed freedom upon which our nation was founded and the truth of which was boldly proclaimed in our nation's founding documents. And it was a failure of our nation to live up to our own ideals, slavery, and its continued practice being chief among our sins. In my deepest heart, I want to believe that it was gospel truth itself that I could no longer contain. To not speak out was wrong and to maintain the peace at the cost of the gospel truth. Was wrong. Jonathan, Josiah, Meshulam, Shabbatai, Jesus Christ, and Galusha Anderson, members of the resistance, all may we follow. In their steps today. Let us pray. God of love, God of freedom, God who pushes aside the brokenness of this world to bring healing and hope, teach us now what it means. To be a part of your resistance, to be a part of your people. In your name we pray. Amen. I read again Luke's version of the Last Supper this week, and I was a, a bit surprised. And taken aback by the way the story unfolds, after the, the meal was over, it, it, it felt like the, the disciples thought that <laughs> it was that scene from Braveheart. Remember when, uh, when all of the, uh, the warlords were, were talking about how they were going to divide up the kingdom? That's what the, the disciples thought they were signing up for. Jesus just shakes his head and says, no, that's, that's not what this is about. That's not what I'm about. And he taught them once again what true greatness is about. On this day, We gather around this table. If you're at home, now is the time to to gather your elements together. If you're here in this place and uh, you haven't received one of these nifty things, uh, you're invited to do so today. These are uh, ways that we will do the communion safely today. Here in a moment, as Pastor Christina leads us, we'll tear off the top and then take the bread and then tear off a, a second wrapping and drink the cup. An odd way to do communion, we know. But communion, nonetheless. Being together. Together. Nonetheless. However we gather today. We gather not to crow about our greatness and our supremacy. We gather to receive the grace of Christ and to show that grace to others. Let us pray. God, bless now these elements, the bread, the cup, all those who gather, wherever they gather, may they all know your love this day. Amen.
0: Come to this table, not because you must, but because you may. Not because you have it all figured out, but because you don't. Jesus Christ was here with us, embodied in suffering and hope, in pain and joy. We just had a sermon that has a whole lot of emotions that we might be feeling right now, but God is not small. God is bigger than all of these emotions God can hold them all together and God is asking us to come to him and with him to celebrate and remember that love is greater than death and sin, that love conquers all, and to remind us that we are part of sharing that love with others. On the day that Jesus was betrayed, he took the bread, he gave thanks, and he broke it Saying, This is my body broken for you. Take, eat, and remembrance of me. Then he took the cup and he said this is a new covenant a covenant of love of sacrificial love whenever you drink this do this in remembrance of me Thank you for being with us today. Now is a time where if you have been felt called and nudged by the Spirit to say, yes, I want to follow Jesus today. Yes, I would like to be a member of this church for you to come and say that, for you to type it in the chat, for you to fill out our form online. We would love to celebrate with you to join our family. Come if you feel called, and we are glad that you are here. Whether you're an official member whether you're visiting for the first time and all in between we're glad you are here
3: from every race from every climb your people You may be seated.
2: Well, thank you for joining in worship today, whether you did it so virtually or in person as we leave here in a few moments. Those of you in this space, remember, we'll uh, wear masks as we come and go inside of the building, uh, and then we'll be able to uh, take them off when we go outside because it's time to party. It is time to celebrate 166 years ago this month. Seven individuals met in a storefront top downtown Lawrence and said, we're going to be church. So now we gather again with pulled pork and gaga ball and all of the fixins to say again, we are church. You're invited to to come and be a part. If you're at home and you forgot it was church picnic Sunday and you want to come on down, you're welcome to join us. All those here in this space, this is your birthday. This is your celebration. Um, Remember, next week is Vacation Bible School. We continue uh, the the, the fun of the summer as uh, we meet downtown with our other partner congregations and do VBS together. Look at the the newsletter for all of the coming uh, events and ministries that we engage in together. As we go now from this place, a blessing. Go now as a part of the resistance of Jesus Christ. Go now with courage. Go now with strength. Go with humble and thoughtful wisdom, but go with hope. Whatever you do, go with hope. Amen.